You need something. Uh, no, I cannot. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody, and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. I mean that for you online because the people here are already cheated and they're already there. Psalm 51. Let's begin with prayer. Let's thank God for another day in which we are alive and that we have uh, the opportunity to hear His Word, to study His Word, to commune with our Father, and to have the great expectation of our future and our destiny with Him. Um, it was one of those times where you get a thought runs across your head and yeah, I get many of those. Most of them are like sinful uh, tempt- <laughs> temptations to sin. I'm trying to chase them away, but uh, just the the thought that I'm, you know, heaven is coming and that this is a temporary place, and it was a wonderful uh, feeling. Uh, you can't you can't maintain it though. Uh, so so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you that you have um, you have so made it through our Lord and Savior that, as weak as we are, that we can pray to you. As as we here on earth and you are in heaven, and yet you have made it so that we can pray to you, and and to have the absolute confidence to know that we are in your presence, speaking with you knowing that you are hearing and knowing that the things that we ask or pursue according to your will will be done. That is your promise. We thank you for the many good things that we have here on earth that you have provided. We thank you for our Lord and Savior in this spiritual life, which is the most important and greatest gift you've given us. And we... Know, Father, that while here, absent from you, that we need to be pleasing to you and that this is only just a a taste of what we will see and experience in heaven uh, through our Lord and his sacrifice, his monumental, painful sacrifice for us that we have life with you. And so, Father, as we continue in our study in the Psalms to see the topics that we can pray about and should pray about, we ask for your blessing, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. So, we continue with uh, guilt, and this is, the emphasis here is the guilt that we need to release from ourselves because of our sins. Uh, And that doesn't at all mean that we are bold sinners. And that we can go forward in sin and not have any guilt. That's not what that means. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, if we have such a lifestyle as believers, our heart should be broken. I don't know if you want to, you can call that guilt, but it's, it's not really the human kind of guilt. Uh, it's really what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7, that it's a sorrow, but it leads to life. It's a sorrow that doesn't have regret. Uh, the regret, <clears throat> he said, the sorrow of the world produces regret, but the sorrow of God, which is repentance, uh, which is a change of heart, has no regret to it. 
So the fact that it doesn't have regret is is really what we're after here, is the ability to let our past go and to press on into the future with the things that God has provided for us to do and to live the life that he's given us. As we noted uh, yesterday, that before searching the truth concerning confession, we have to know before we do this, this, this is about sin and the confession of sin. And it's all over the Psalms, as I'll show you in a slide in a second. There's, it's, uh, it's, it's immense, the number of Psalms that deal with the sins of God's people and their confession of those sins and their uh, uh, path to repentance, uh, and to, meaning that they're going to change their hearts from what they were doing to the right path, to the right way, and, and in each of those psalms that speaks of that, there's the great benefit that comes from doing that. And so as you continue to read, you see this blessing that comes from God upon sinners who uh, understand and come to understand that God's forgiveness is complete. Old Testament and New, they never doubted uh, God's forgiveness. Uh, and, 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 and nor should we. We need to absolutely understand that we're forgiven. Before you do any study on sin or confession or whatever is wrong with you, uh, it will be uh, overbearing and burdensome if we don't understand that we're completely forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. That has to be firmly entrenched in our souls. Uh, so... <clears throat> This, uh, as, it, as Paul writes, praise God for his indescribable gift. The indescribable gift is Jesus Christ, and through him we have complete forgiveness. We noted those, past, Ephesians 1, 7, Colossians 1, 14, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, or 13 and 14, uh, speak of our complete forgiveness of all transgression. So it would actually surprise, I would think, a number of people to know that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints have absolute assurance of their forgiveness. Uh, they have to bring an animal sacrifice, and that is just a depiction of their faith in the coming uh, Messiah. Uh, but, you know, it's not the sacrifice that provides the forgiveness. And this is clearly delineated as, as we read through the Bible that the blood of animals does not atone for sin but only the sacrifice of Christ does atone for sin. Uh, the faithful in Israel would have known that. They wouldn't have known Jesus by name, but they know a Messiah is coming. They know that what those animals, all of those animals, millions of them, would have been sacrificed over the years. That they depicted someone to come that was promised through the prophets. It's actually promised in, in the Torah that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent on the head. So, uh, <clears throat> However, the fact that they absolutely were assured of the forgiveness of God, they never saw it, it not those who wrote in the scripture, never saw it. I'm sure there were some in Israel who did. I'm sure there were many in Israel who just took it for granted. There's many Christians who take it for granted. And, and don't understand, um, you know, what did, what did God have to do to forgive us. And, and this is not to make us feel guilty, but to be uh, quite solemn uh, about, you know, 
what this cost. It costs God his son. And yeah, the son was delivered back to him, of course, but for them to be, the father and the son, to be separated, uh, the father forsook the son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The amount of pain, it really, to hell and back, our Lord went. And as an innocent man, um, and he and he alone only could suffer the, the consequences of sin as a, as a sinless man. And so, uh, neither in neither testament, the New Testament writers uh, are when they write about the cross, it's very solemn, soul-searching, and uh, um, hallowed, if you will. It's hallowed ground. You know, like like God in the burning bush told Moses, "Take your sandals off your feet. You're on. You're in a precious place." Uh, and, and and we are too. Uh, knowing that we're forgiven and sinners that we are, you know, we're we're not sinners every once in a while, right? I mean, we're sinners, and and we can get very familiar with God's forgiveness, and we mustn't. And and it's when we get familiar with it that we will sin more. And again, it's not a guilt thing; it's an understanding, the amazing sacrifice of our Lord. To forgive us, and so by that sacrifice, well, let's deal with this first. The blood sacrifice which secured our forgiveness is never ever to be seen in some casual, laissez-faire manner. Even when we pray "Our Father," and we know that we can call Him "Our Father" because we're there in Christ's name, the fact that we bear Christ's name, you know, that that is a solemn thing. It's a, the greatest gift that we have. And so we shouldn't take it for granted. The writers don't. Neither should we. So look at Psalm 51.16. Actually, let's, let's read the beginning of it. The first stanza, which I didn't put in my notes. But uh, again, this is uh, the, the truly heart-wrenching psalm. Uh, psalm 32 is similar, uh, very similar to this. Psalm 51, as you see in the title, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Uh, I was reading about, uh, quote-unquote, going in <laughs> today. And if you, if you grab another more looser translation, like uh, one of the, the expanded translation I, I'm come to like the most, at least at this point, is the New Living Translation. It's quite good. And, uh, yeah, coming in, if you read it in that, it says, has sex with. So, if you want a more risque reading of the Bible, and, you, you know, you're like, I'm sick of this, uh, this, uh, what, do, what do they call it, uh, when you over, when you gloss over, anyway, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I never use that language, I just say it like it is, right? But, uh, this is what, David had taken Bathsheba, uh, committed adultery with her, there's a question of whether he forced himself and then she gave in, whatever. Nobody knows anything about that. He forced himself on her. They committed adultery and she had a child from that. That child is in the line of Christ, which is another aspect of something I almost brought up today, but then I took it out. And you know, now that I talk about it, I should have kept it in. But in the genealogy of Christ in the opening of the New Testament, 
in the opening of Matthew's Gospel, there's four women in that genealogy. And you never put women in a genealogy. Ever. Matthew, who's writing to Jews, and Jews love genealogy. Uh, he puts four women in there. And one of them's Rahab, prostitute. Bathsheba has a child in adultery. Tamar, who disguises herself as a prostitute so she can get pregnant by her father-in-law, who's Judah. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, Ruth, who is not a Jew. Neither is Rahab. They're all in the line of Christ. Their blood is in the body of Christ. It's, and so what is Matthew, what is God saying to us? I'm going to build my kingdom not out of the righteous. And uh, so, here we have great David, the great father of the Lord. In verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. <laughs> You've got to love this. That David claims God's promise. Be gracious to me, not for any you know, casual reason, but be gracious to me because you have promised. That's what loving kindness is. It's covenant love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I, mean, I can't let go of it. What that means is it's, it's right there. I see me taking Bathsheba. I see me giving the order to Joab to go kill her husband. And it keeps coming. You've experienced this. Oh, I have. Well, that sin keeps coming up, keeps coming up. It's like a rerun. It's like a terrible rerun. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's true. But it doesn't mean he hasn't sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. Some have used this line to say, well, yeah, I know I really hurt you, but I sinned against God, so shut up. I've, I've heard people talk that way. And that is taking that passage out of context. We do sin against God only because he's the lawgiver. But it doesn't mean that we don't hurt others. And done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So then David goes on to speak of how he's born a sinner. And then in verse 14, to deliver me from my guilt, O God, the God of my salvation. But notice what he says in verse 17, 16, starting in verse 16. So if David, in Psalm 32, we read this yesterday, and maybe we'll get to it again today. David said, I kept silent about my sin. So it meant that David didn't do what he was supposed to do. Now, so as a Jew, under the Mosaic Law, and he, he's in Jerusalem. The, the tabernacle is there. So he needs to bring an animal to the priest, to the tabernacle, confess the sin, and offer the proper sacrifice, which in this case would have been a burnt offering. And he doesn't do it. He keeps silent about his sin, and as he writes about in Psalm 32, it's tearing him up inside. You see in Psalm 51 that it's always before his eyes. And he has not... So what is this? Is he forgiven because he's confessed? No. He is restored when he confesses. By confessing, he's going to bring this baggage 
this isn't some casual sin where, in, you know, what we call them little white lie you said to somebody or you cut somebody cut you off on the highway and you told them they were number one or, you know, whatever. And, and you know, and, and, you know the, these things come and they go and maybe you forgot all about them. There's still sins. Thankfully, for the grace of God, we don't have to keep track of every one of them. We should strive not to do any of them. Give the finger to nobody. <laughs> There's a lesson for you today, a Bible class. Okay. <laughs> uh, but here we have adultery and murder. It's going to weigh heavy upon you. And he doesn't, he doesn't bring the sin right to God and say, look, this is me, this is mine, this is on me, between me and you. <clears throat> Either kill me or forgive me, but let's get it over with. And I, I liken this to the woman that we saw yesterday, the, the woman who is likely a prostitute, who runs into the Pharisee's house and dives at Jesus' feet. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to say. But she's probably had enough of her lifestyle and knows that he's the Lord. So either judge me and kill me or forgive me and restore me. But let's have it out. And that's what I see, especially this time around. I see the great benefit of confession. Just get it out before God for, for one very important reason. That you want to walk with him closer and better. That the things that we keep messing up in and we keep doing, that we want to overcome. So we confess. And Jesus said it in the prayer, right? Can we forgive us our sins and as we forgive others. And that's every day. So what does David say here in verse 16? So going back to David, if David just said, you know what? Our <clears throat> yeah, uh, uh, I slept with her. That's true. And I had him killed. Man, oh man. All right, get a bull. Actually, get two bulls because I've got murder and adultery. And I'll bring him to the temple. And then he walks up to the temple and he goes up to the high priest. I think it's Eleazar at the time. And he's like, hey, Eli, what's up? Uh, committed adultery. Killed Uriah. I know, right? Here's the bulls. Kill him. And let me get back to work. We good? We cool? You could have easily done that. And actually... There were, God accuses Israel of doing that very thing. You know, not in an Italian accent like I kind of did it, but, you know. <laughs> but he says, God says to them, it's right in the opening of Isaiah, he says, stop bringing me your animals. Just stop. Because you do not know what you're doing. You're just bringing them. And in fact, uh, in Israel, they'd be like, yeah, I committed a sin, I got to i got to bring a lamb to the priest. Uh, no, 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 don't, not that one. That's a good one. Get the blind one that's half dead over there with the flies swarming around it. Get that one. We'll go sacrifice him. God says exactly that, that that's exactly what they were doing. So David knows better. Verse 16, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. And what he means there, he's going to bring the sacrifice. What he means there is, you know, we kind of, I'm, I'm leery to do this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure what David means here is that I would just give the sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering, the sacrifices of God. 
are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, this isn't, this isn't, you know, you better feel guilty for your sins or you're not going to be forgiven. It's, I love the Lord and I broke his law. That's what it is. David is king, has been so blessed by God, and David is a lover of God. This is clear about him. God even professes it of David. He says it all throughout the Old Testament. If it weren't for David, you know, and God loved David. David loved God. David reciprocated God's love. And after he had done what he had done, he just kind of went on with his life hoping it would go away. And he did not honor the Lord. We must honor him. And... And I know you and I both know exactly what that means. Let's take a deep breath. Praise God for His grace. Because if you live that long, you could be 100 years old. And if, <laughs> please know, <laughs> I just heard, please know. <laughs> right here in this basement, 100 years old. <laughs> Same seat, Suzanne. <laughs> Still got Roger over there. He's, he's up there. Oh, man. But what, what I mean is, our age doesn't matter. Um, we can turn this ship around. Because here's what God's going to do for us. He's forgiven us. So why is he telling us to confess? Because he wants to restore us. He does not want us walking through life burdened by guilt. But he also doesn't want us sinning joyfully and boldly, not burdened by guilt. He wants us to leave. He wants, it, he wants us to struggle through this life falling, 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 and getting up and getting up and getting up. As it says in Proverbs, a righteous man falls seven times in a day, but picks himself back up. He picks himself up, and God wants you, you and I to find our groove here in the spiritual life, which is not to be mastered by our flesh. And so confession, it's not, confession isn't going to give you mastery over your flesh because we can confess and confess and confess. I know this for a fact because I confessed sin for decades while I heartily gave into it. Actually, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, and he said, yeah, well, I was in the midst of sin. I was confessing it. You know, while I was in the process. And I'm like, God, this is a sin, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, that's, not, that's not what confession was designed for. Yeah, that's like you going to the temple to the high priest with, you know, your harlot or something. I, I'm trying to think of something overt, you know. Um. And, and he's saying, yeah, I, I confess I'm committing adultery. This is my girlfriend right here. Um, we were offering two bowls, <laughs> you know, and uh, then we're going to go get it on. You know, it's, is this what confession is for? Sorry, I'm a little, getting a little loose up here. So, hey, he said, what, I didn't say get it on. He said, gone in. That's what the Bible says. Gone, I can't say that. Uh, so, the particular attitude, our attitude about sin, is it necessary for forgiveness? No. So 1 John 2, 2. I put these on the board because we're going to stay in Psalms. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. 1 John 2, 12. 
He says in verse 2, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father as Jesus Christ the righteous. If we sin. But in verse 2, in 1 John 2, 1, he said, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. And right before that is 1 John 1, 9, if we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. So your sins are forgiven. Now, the overly simplistic say, well, shoot, that's awesome. So I can, you know, let grace increase as I sin all the more. And Paul writes about that in uh, Romans 6. But, you know, why confess? Never, never mind, you know, I'm not going to confess anything. There's a, there's a whole camp of people out there who don't think they have to confess it. And I'm not saying you have to, because you don't have to. There's not a, I should say, in the New Testament, there is no command to confess sins. It's not there. Confessing sin is found in one verse, 1 John 1, 9. But it's there, and it's also in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins. He doesn't say confess your sins. It's not a command, but forgive us our sins. And it means that there we're keeping ourselves in the understanding of the fact that we are sinners and we're seeking to overcome so that we can walk with our holy God in life and therefore experience life to the maximum, this life that he's given us. <clears throat> and so you've got this. And then this was in today's reading, which I was happy to read because of the subject, uh, in the Bible reading today. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12 Paul says, I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Right? They have practiced. And, of course, he's writing to the Corinthians saying that I, I have what I want for you is to change your ways. And why? You know the reason he gives them? Because you're the holy temple of God. Paul always argues for our behavior, conduct, based upon what Christ has done for us and what we experience on the day of salvation. So Paul looks to the past. Very often, Peter more often looks to the future. Peter will say, behave in such a way because you're going to be in heaven. Behave in such a way because this flesh is going to die. Behave in such a way because this whole world is going to be burned to the ground. And so he says, what sort of people should we be in 2 Peter 3? So Paul looks to our past. Peter looks to our future. And it turns out that John looks to the present. He says, we, John emphasizes we have eternal life right now. And so what sort of people should we be? I find that fascinating. You got one apostle talking about the past, the other the future, the one the present. And in each case, there's an argument for, you know, this is what God did for me. This is what I am. This is where I'm going. And all of it centers around the grace of God in providing for me a life that is beyond dreams. So that's why Paul says here, I hope, it, in the context, he's saying, I hope I don't mourn. That because he says in the in Second Corinthians that he was going to return to visit them, and that he hoped that when he came he would not see them in impurity, immorality, sensuality, and so if I'm forgiven, why do, why do I need to repent of these things? And and the answer is obvious. Uh, <clears throat> 
God desires us and we are made for this life. And by uh, the, the means of dealing with our flaws, faults, and weaknesses is to confess them openly to God and to bring them into his presence and to deal with them. When I say deal with them, you know, it, it's, that's between you and God. Uh, sometimes I talk to him about the source. Why am I doing this? Sometimes I talk to him about, like I, I completely know the source already. Why am I still doing this? Uh, on and on. Whatever it is, we've got to figure this out for ourselves in our own prayer life. Because I love, I am loving this, that we're not given instructions step by step on how to get from unclean mind to clean mind. Because you could confess and still have an unclean mind. So how do, confession is in the process. So how do I get from here to here? And uh, you and I have got to figure that out by the Word of God. And, and so, the Bible. See, where do you find procedures on to get from unclean to clean? Right? And the procedure is generally a ritual. Where do you see that? You see it in religions. Pagan religions. You say, actually, even the Jewish religion, but... David pointed out to us that if you went through the cleansing ritual and you went through the animal sacrifice, and that's you thought, well, I'm covered, but you did not care about the law of God. You did not obey the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And David said, as, as he just said for us in, in Psalm 51, all right, a, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. So, how do we figure it out? Well, the reason why we have to figure it out is that the Bible is about real life. And real life is uh, it's complex. And in a way, <laughs> you go again, because really, the, the precepts of truth are simple. But coming to understand them in the reality of my own life, it means, I mean... The reason why it's complex is not because it's something like uh, rocket science to figure it out. It's just that there's so many variables. Real life is not overly simplistic. People are not overly simplistic. And so the Bible is about real life. Simplistic pagan religions have rituals. You do this, you do this, you pour this on you, you say these words, and you're out. I, uh, when I grew up Catholic Church, it was ritual. I think I went to confession like once. I, my first confession, you had to do that. And then later on, I think I did it once. And to sit there in that box and tell that priest what you did. And, and basically, I never told him what I did. I just made something up. And even then, the guilt, oh my God. But what does the priest do? He tells you how many Hail Marys and how many Our Fathers to say. And you feel down and low. You're there in the church center. you got statues all around you staring at you like, what a loser. And you say these prayers and you're out. Done. It's simple. But, so, look at Psalm 4. This was also in today's Bible reading. This uh, We already spoke about this, but... 
I'll say it again when we wrap up prayer. There's going to be times in prayer where you are somewhat sure that God has started to speak with you. This happened to me today when I read Psalm 4. And when that happens, stop. Stop talking and listen because it doesn't happen all the time. When you feel that God is speaking to you, stop and listen. And uh, so look at 4 4. Tremble and do not sin. This is one of the Psalms that recognizes sin. It's a short little guy, a short little psalm. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Meditate. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1 to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. What are we going to meditate? Because it, what God wants us to do is to truly understand something that is real. It's about real life. It's about real God's life and our real life, our day-to-day real life. Dealing with real people and, and real situations. And a lot of, uh, especially where we are in the West and, and wealthy enough, all of us, that uh, we don't have to worry about where our food's going to come from and are we going to get attacked by the, the vandals or whoever, you know. So our life, you know, the problems that we face are all kind of, not all, many, most of which are somewhat like details of life minutia stuff. But they can certainly take our joy away. Absolutely. So meditate. Meditate means that these things must be pondered. And hence the Salah in the Psalms. Salah means stop and consider. So here are the repentance Psalms. And uh, we're only going to deal with a few of these. <clears throat> Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. Those are not the only ones either. But that's, that's a great sampling. Uh, if you had these, I, I would suggest... You know, I, what I suggest, and I, and I hope you don't leave this, when we leave this subject, to leave it behind, to read the Psalms and to get uh, into the habit of doing so. Again, they're very short, most of them. You know, when you get to Psalm 119, take a few days. Just take it in, in chunks. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102 when you're dealing with your failures, to pull one of these out and read them and pray about them, oh, it makes all the difference in the world. You're not searching for the right words. You don't need them. They're right there. You can put these ideas in your own words as long as you know the truth of them. All right, 632, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. Then you have Psalms recognizing sin. Psalm 4, 14, 15, 25, 31, 39, 40, and 41. Amongst many, a few others. Uh, and why so much singing or praying about sin? Well, sin is a problem with the human race. And God wants us, therefore, to deal with it. Uh, so let's look at Psalm 6. For the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-stringed lyre. That's not that's an instrument, not L-I-A-R. That would be a sin. A Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. 
Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Right? This is David again. Torn up. Torn up by his decisions. And yet he seeks. He's seeking the Lord. Notice he's not seeking uh, his best friend. He's not wallowing in self-pity. Even though he's in the wrong, where is he going? He, and yeah, This is before the cross, yet still David knows that the only place I can go to find restoration is the Lord. Now, there, you find here in this, uh, how many times have I read, well, I've been going through the Psalms these last couple of weeks, this phrase, how long? So I decided to look it up. It's very easy to do with a computer. How long? Psalm 4, Psalm 6, Psalm 13, 35, 62, 74, 79, 80, 82, 89, 90, 94. How long? That long. <laughs> and, and so, it's and in every case, I briefly read the lines that they were in. It is a person saying to the Lord, How long? How long till you deliver? How long till this burden is gone how long till this pain is gone how long how long how long and this could be i'm not going to cover this This i actually found in another book that i was looking at for another reason that there was a section on the psalms in this book it's about uh this book is about anyway it doesn't matter but there's a section in there about topics in the psalms and i just skimmed them and i'm like wow i didn't even touch any of those in this study so I'll give you a summary of them at the end of this, and we'll move on. Uh, our purpose in this study is not to actually read all the Psalms through. I'm, I'm asking you to do that. I mean, I could stand up here and read through them all. That's not, that's not what they're for. They're for us to read again and again and again throughout our lives. But look at what I saw in that other book, too, was a whole bunch of other topics that I didn't even touch upon, which makes the number of topics that are addressed in the Psalms that are all dealing with real saints who are dealing with God in real time are probably like 15 to 20 different things that are of, um, of, that are very important to us. Like, the, like dealing with guilt. Like... Um, Understanding our Lord, understanding our Messiah, uh, having hope and confidence in God. The things that are of extreme importance for us. Understanding God in his program. Um, so go to Psalm 32 now. How long? Uh, I did notice in the New Testament there was one particular how long that jumped off the page to me, and it was Jesus. And he said, uh, this was when the disciples couldn't heal the boy. They couldn't cast the demon out of the little boy. who was The, the demon kept throwing the boy into the fire. And the father brought the little boy to the disciples and said, can you cast this demon out? And they couldn't do it. And Jesus said, how long will I be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? <laughs> wow, wow. And, and it makes you think, you know, the Son of God, His only experience has been divine in heaven 
without having to deal with us on a one-on-one, face-to-face basis. He becomes a man which makes him temptable, which makes him burdensome, and all that he had to endure, and he has to endure it with us. And while he's enduring it with us for a few years, he's God for all eternity, so that's a piece of cake. But being with you as a man, how <laughs> it's like eternity on earth. How long? That's how tough we are. We're hard to be with. And so our chief virtue is divine love, is it not? We're hard to be with. Even the people we love the most, at times they become burdensome. That's how ridiculous we are. <clears throat> so the patience, the, sorry, the repentance psalms lead us to the confession of guilt and direct our complete confidence to the forgiving grace of God. Let's quickly do Psalm 32 and then get to the gospel. Psalm 32, 1. Psalm of David, a mascal. How we, st- we read the first two stanzas yesterday. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. No deceit means I'm not hiding it from God. Notice in the first stanza, the person speaking is a transgressor. So he's not sinless. So when it says no deceit, it doesn't mean sinless. It means that I am honest and open with God. When I keep silent about my sin, when I kept, sorry, silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. Have you done something that made you feel that low? I have. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I will confess my transgression to the Lord Notice his confidence, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Salah. He has no doubt that he's forgiven. Therefore, in verse 6, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance, Salah. The invisible God is my hiding place. Why? Well, I'm no longer silent about my sin. I'm open. I brought it to him. And what is this? What this really is, is not a judicial thing because the judicial thing happens between the Son and the Father at Calvary. I am not a part of that. Judicially, Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. That's why we're justified. Not my confession of sin does not justify me. That's blasphemy. He has justified me. This confession of sin is my experience of God's forgiveness. It's total. I, I'm, I'm going boldly to God's holy throne and bringing my unholy stupidity and saying, I have. I am, this is all on me. I have done this. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not giving any reasons. I'm not hiding it. I'm not making excuses. It's on me. It's mine. And what do you experience in that moment? Complete forgiveness. This washes you, cleanses you. 
Now, it's another the other in, in judicially you're cleansed forever. But this is my heart is no longer bogged down by guilt, regret, uh, that sin continually before my eyes. Can you imagine if your sins, all the sins, the ones that you're you really uh, uh, are speak bad of you. <laughs> my words didn't come to me there, but. And that was on a constant highlight reel in front of your eyes. There you are doing that. There you are saying that. There you are doing that again. There you are thinking that. And around and around it goes. How many sins? I mean, it would be so many you wouldn't see the same one come back around probably all day. And yet, this was continual, continual, continual. Kill me. But what does God do? And it's supernatural. Because I, I don't understand how I can, and, and you can. <laughs> I mean, we all have the same, we have sin in our past, uh, stuff that we're embarrassed about, that we go on with no thought of it. We know it's there. We know it was there. But we know we're completely forgiven by the blood of Christ. Does this cause us to want to go on in sin? That's the, the kicker here. The experience of God's grace and forgiveness does not want you to make you want to sin more. It's actually the hiding of it, making excuses about it, not dealing with it. That's what drives you in it. So, uh, <clears throat> confession gives David the experience of complete forgiveness. That's what I'm emphasizing here. And I want us to experience this in our own prayer life when we confess. And so notice his great change. First, the great change happened in the second stanza where he says, I'm your, you're my hiding place, you preserve me. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is God speaking. Look, David is now ready for instruction and teaching and counsel. This is, he's, he's back with God. Do not be as the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle. Hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. In other words, don't be to me one who I have to force to come near me. And the bit in the horse's mouth causes pain, right? And that's why they move. So don't be, the, don't be like this where I have to smash you to get you near me, to make you pain, to hurt. But... Come to me willingly. And he's training us all to do it. Confession is a part of it. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. We went for the one who was silent about his sin at the beginning of the psalm to the one who's shouting for joy and is upright at the end of the psalm. And it's the same sinner. And in the middle, he honestly confessed. Got it in the open, in God's light, dealt with it. All right, Luke chapter 8. Just enough time, I think. So here's our principle. Except now with this, this lady that we're going to see in Psalm 8, in, I'm sorry, in Luke 8. In Luke 7, we saw the woman who was a sinner. And the Lord didn't say to her, 
you know, I'm just gonna I'm gonna die for your sins anyway, just get out of here. You're forgiven, go. No. He says to her, You're forgiven, go in peace. He speaks with her. Remember, as he's talking to Simon, he's looking right at her. He says, Simon, you see this woman? I love I that's the first time I'd ever that it ever became so real to me that he says to Simon while he's looking at her, do you see this woman? <laughs> he's seeing the woman. And that, that is uh, subtly uh, makes the point so much more wonderful. Is that he's looking right at us, right through us. And uh, by him, we can be cleansed and overcome. Uh, confession of the Father is needful and cleansing because we experience His forgiveness. Uh, if we know doctrinally that we're forgiven, but certain sinful areas continue to reign over us and put us at their mercy, and we know that that, that weakness is under the surface, like under a quarter inch of topsoil, and it will rear up its head, and I know at any time I'm going to be a slave to it. Does that give you a confident walk with God? It's not as confident as it should be. Right? That's, that needs to be overcome. It needs to be buried deep, deep, and, and gone. Uh, but it doesn't mean we're going to be sinless, of course. We may understand that we're forgiven, and maybe we did overcome our weaknesses, but the people in our lives don't know it. What they know of you is your past. And that's how they see you. No matter what you say to them, they're not going to change their perspective of you. <clears throat> Do we know what it's like to have a deformity? Call it sinful. If it is sinful, it could be physical. I, I just There was an article about a man who was uh, he's a soldier who survived uh, an incredible burn uh, all over his body. He's burned all over his body. I, I forget where he was deployed. But his face has been surgically repaired and it looks grotesque. Like it make little kids run for the hills. And yet he has to live with that. Yet he's a hero. And any one of us would see him and say like, oh, I can't look at it. Can you see past that and see the soul within the man who is the real man? He didn't burn himself. It's not his fault. Um, what about us? Uh, have, have, imagine you had a physical deformity that made others want to move to the other side of the street. Or if they saw you at the grocery store, they'd take a different aisle. How many people do we do that to? I wonder. What if the deformity was internal, meaning that it was cured or it was healed, that the transformation wasn't seen overtly? In other words, I've made strides. I've overcome. I'm starting to overcome. I'm not sinless, but I'm not the person I was before. So here's, here's my point in this, which we get from this woman. Where does our dignity come from? So often we want to prove to people, look, I'm a better person than I used to be. Or, 
you know, I'm, I don't do that anymore or whatever. And, and we're looking for them to approve of us. And that's where we're going to get our dignity from others who say, you know, you're, you know, you're good. They approve. And people are fickle and we know it. Where does our dignity come from? Look at Luke 8.43. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, which means that she sought healing. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. In other words, they're all touching you, Lord. How could we tell? And Jesus said, No, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. So this would mean to us, and you know, we have to be careful about going too far uh, with conjecture, but the other people who were touching them were not getting healed of anything. Maybe they weren't sick, or maybe, un- unlike this woman, they didn't have faith. What we may not understand about this woman woman, is that she was seen by all in Israel as an unclean outcast. That's why I said, what, what about us or others? If it's not about you that's been an outcast, who do you see in your life as an outcast? Don't we all have little area, pet peeve, self-righteous areas where if someone steps in that area, to be grace, and I'm not talking about just being gracious, because we we have this idea that that love is impersonal, and meaning that well, as long as I just don't judge them, I'm fine. But aren't you supposed to serve and encourage? And how about and that applies to this because the people on just like Christ encourages this woman. He's going, he encouraged the woman who, was, who ran into the Pharisee's house. In other words, he said to these women, you're healed and you're saved, but I want you to know that you are. I want you to know that as I look at you and I talk to you, that I, the Lord, am okay with you. I approve of you. And this, he's giving them dignity. And by such, he's encouraging them. We find it easy to encourage people that are in areas that, you know, we don't really care about. There's certain areas where I see people sin and it doesn't bother me at all. And for the reason being is because those are my areas. I'm like, oh yeah, I understand that. It doesn't bother me a lick. But there are other areas that where I have these little, they're kind of like peeves, little pet areas. Someone starts walking around in those areas, ugh. No compassion from me, buddy. Straighten up. Fly right. No compassion. No, it's, never mind encouragement. We're actually to encourage. Encourage meaning a kind word. Encourage meaning to pray and say, you know, how can I help them? And actually tell them, you know, I'm on your side. I want to help you. I, I, you know, it, it's how encouragement is done. This woman is going to get encouraged. She has been for 12 years an outcast from Israel because she is unclean, according to the Mosaic Law. She has a, a dis, this hemorrhage is bleeding, and this bleeding makes her unclean. She was likely an outcast of the community, neighbors, and probably even her own family. No one wanted anything to do with her. 
So she hides herself in the crowd, covers her head likely with her shawl, sneaks up behind Jesus, reaches a timid arm through this forest of people and barely touches his cloak and she feels it immediately. She's healed. But even so, she's healed and she's like, I don't know, call her Mary. That's half the people in the Bible, right? Hey, Mary, you. No, no, I'm clean now. Uh, Yeah, right. Prove it. How's she going to prove it? I'm clean. She's not going to get her dignity, her self-worth from people. And this brings us to the aspect of sin and shame that we will likely miss in our study of confession and sin is because we miss it, and I do too, I had to be reminded this, of this by my study, that our, in, a, in this subject our eyes go immediately inward. We talk about sin, we think of our own sin. We don't think of the sins of others. Of which we are commanded to forgive. Forgive as Christ has forgiven us, and that means all sin. It's my sin and shame that concerns me, and sure, and that's unavoidable, but you must not miss this part of this study. The sin and shame of others should concern me. How can I encourage them? How can I help them? How can I help them on their way? We're supposed to do it. So just as God encourages us through forgiveness and added encouragement to move forward, so should we do to one another. And uh, you can be rest assured that God is going to put people in your life that are going to purposely, not well, God has them purposely putting their muddy feet on your self-righteous carpet. <laughs> that little area where you have your little self-righteous pet peeve, that's your clean little carpet, nobody touch it. They're going to come in with their little grubby feet and walk all over it. And you're going to be like, oh. Are you going to love them? Are you going to encourage them? And here's what God's doing to us. Getting us over this, this hump of what fallen humanity is. Fallen humanity is proud, selfish, arrogant, self-centered, uh, self-seeking, self-everything. And he's getting us over it. Because on the other side of that is the promised land the bright sunshine of the divine life. While we're walking around in the dark, dingy, well, you know, kind of like Oregon in the winter. (laughs) It turns out, actually, that encouragement is the key to inner happiness. And I I get this from uh, Max Lucado's book, which was really, really good. I was listening to it again today that uh, it's actually proven that those who encourage one another have happier homes, happier workforce, happier families, happier churches. Happy, productive families, and he, he quotes a study, they say four positive things for every one negative thing, which I love the fact that at least there's one negative thing. So I think, well, you know, <clears throat> none of us are sinlessly perfect. There's no... Marriage or home where everything is positive. There's going to be flaws. But four positive for every one negative. In the, in the homes that are uh, unproductive and unhappy, 
three negative things for every one positive. There's far more negativity. So notice what Jesus does to her. I'm out of time. I, I, I knew it. Uh, verse 47, when the, woman saw, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He calls her and trembling. Of course she is. Now she's the center of attention. She's been an outcast for 12 years. Now everybody's staring at her, just like they were the other woman in the Pharisee's house. And Jesus does what? He listens to her. She tells her story, and he listens. He, he, stops he stops what he's doing, and he listens to the whole thing. And then he says, get lost. Silence! I am the Lord. Verse 48, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The Lord of glory called her daughter. Talk about vindication. Talk about dignity. And if anybody else says to her, look, he calls us his children too, right? If someone says to us, no, you're this, no, you're that, you can call me that, but my Lord calls me son. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls somebody daughter to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In Mark's Gospel, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And I think that healed of your affliction probably means more than the hemorrhaging. Healed in your soul. The Lord has forgiven us all of our sins. He encourages us to know and experience forgiveness in time so that our hearts will always be restored. That will always have dignity because of Him. If you have dignity because of yourself, that's just self-centered pride. Dignity because of Him. Because of what He calls us. And this will give us, uh, by the confession of our sins, for bringing them to Him, and both uh, the, the woman, the prostitute woman, and this woman, she, they kind of came to Him to get healed. We're doing the same thing. We're, we're coming to Him with confession uh, our sin's already forgiven. So we're coming to Him for overcoming, release of guilt, finding the reason so that we don't do it again. Finding the power to be spiritual on a day-by-day -day basis. And this encouragement that God gives us is the momentum. We get momentum from this. That we're forgiven and it is His desire that we go in peace. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your forgiveness. The encouragement that comes from your word, which are the words of your mouth, uh, were small and, and not all that smart, Father. We, we struggle to keep things uh, straight in our minds, and yet... We have your truth and we have your Holy Spirit within to make sense of it, to lead us in it, to guide us in it. And so we ask, Father, that you supernaturally work in our lives, that we clearly see the truth and the, the, what is really important. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.